me, I am Bob Thomas, executive pastor of Community <laughs> Alliance Church. <laughs> if you're visiting today, we're really honored to have you. I am Denny Christick, senior pastor, and all that simply means is I'm the oldest guy on staff when they say senior. The sermon title is entitled, From One Extreme to the Other. I'm sure at some point in your journey of life, not just with God, but your journey of life, you've had those experiences where you literally have gone emotionally from one extreme to the other. I mean, your week couldn't have started out better. You were on top of the world. But somewhere along the way, an event happened or something took place or a series of events took place where you felt like the bottom literally fell out and you wish you hadn't got out of bed. As a pastor, I've literally had Saturdays where I had a wedding and a funeral on the same day. And the emotional gauntlet of that, if it was an older individual that you had anticipated passing away, it's one thing, but on a number of occasions, I've had an incredible celebration of a, of a marriage, of a couple who had looked forward to it for an extended period of time and couldn't wait for that day. And then a few hours later, I had to bury a friend. And the emotional transition that you have to go through to do that is overwhelming. Some of you in the audience celebrated at one particular point in a given week the birth of a child that couldn't get any better emotionally than that, only to, by the end of the week, have a family member who passed away. Or even in that moment of the birth of a child, celebrating that moment because you were so excited and looked forward to it for so long, only to realize that one of the people that you wanted to join in that celebration wasn't there. I don't know if you remember the story of two or three years ago, I think it was, of the couple from Westinghouse that worked at Westinghouse in Cranberry who died in an accident on their honeymoon. And I couldn't even fathom what it must have been like for the family to have on that Saturday celebrated one of the greatest events in the history of their children to less than a week later of all places on a honeymoon to have them pass away. Well, you get the idea of what it's like to run that emotional gauntlet from one extreme to the other, where you couldn't feel more exhilaration to incredible intensity and overwhelming sadness. Probably no other week in history has more extremes than this week, what we call Passover week. It begins today. If you were to imagine in your mind what it was like for Mary, the mother of Christ, if you've seen the History Channel story, it's been really well done in a lot of ways and uh, exceptional to watch. It continues to stay with uh, high ratings of people that are intrigued by it. But uh, the, the character that, that they betray or portray, and every time I'm in one of those or watching one of those or looking through the Word of God, I try to put myself in a place of those that I'm reading about. And I couldn't even imagine what it was like for Mary to have gone through the week she's about to go through 2,000 and some years ago. I mean, if she was there at the triumphal entry of Christ, can you imagine her pride? Every one of you who are parents... When your child achieves something great, when they graduate or earn their master's or get their nursing degree or land that first really good job or have a wedding or have a child or earn their doctorate, whatever it may be, you're incredibly proud. My dad took off two events in my life, my marriage and my ordination. Everything else he couldn't do because of the farm and everything that was entailed in that. And so years later, after 50 
some years. I earned my doctorate. He took the weekend off, flew down, which he very seldom doesn't do, flew down to Virginia Beach to be there that day. I couldn't be more excited the fact that my dad showed up at that event. Can you imagine what it was like for Mary to be there at the triumphal entry if she was there that day seeing the exhilaration of the crowd only to have then walked with her that entire week to all of a sudden find her by Friday at the foot of the cross. And I know she knew the promise of God. I know she knew the words of God. I'm sure she remembered what the angel told her when she was told about being the mother of the Christ. And he was going to bring salvation. And, and when, when they took him to the temple and Simeon predicted a little bit of what was going to take place. And, and I'm sure she heard the stories. And I'm sure she was well aware in these last three years of the interaction of Jesus and what was going to take place. But when you see it, you can't even imagine it. And what it was like for her to go through that experience at that triumphal entry to kneeling and standing at the foot of the cross of Calvary to see her son on the cross. I can't even fathom. You talk about extremes of every person that was involved in that Passion Week, from Peter and John to Mary and everyone like that. Brendan Manning says there is something about Passion Week, the crucifixion that made every single witness either step toward it or away from it. 2,000 years later, the same is still true. It is the watershed, the continental divide. You're either on one side or the other, but a choice is demanded. You can do what you want with the cross. You can examine its history, study its theology, but one thing you cannot do is walk away neutral. The cross doesn't allow that, and neither does God. We're going to take a mental and biblical journey this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can certainly follow along. There's not sermon notes, but we're going to look at a lot of, of the last few days in the life of Christ here on earth in his ministry. Really for the next month we're going to do that. For these three weeks specifically, we're going to look at those last few weeks. This particular week, Passion Week, and then Sunday after Easter we're going to talk about those 40 days after the resurrection and look at the story in Acts chapter 1. One of the things that I do every, almost every single year in my journey with God is that during this week of Passion Week, I will look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read every chapter about this week. I love to look at it from their vantage point, to kind of look at it through their eyes. And every one of them have a different vantage point. Every one of them see a little bit of a different aspect of the Passion Week. And so I, I literally, this whole week, I set aside my normal devotional track. And, and I take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'll begin to look at all of the events that took place during this particular week in every one of those gospel stories. And they are fascinating. It's a fascinating journey. And what interests me or intrigues me is every year I do it, I see something I didn't see the year before. Or at least something stands out that didn't stand out before. I'm going to do that this morning in a pretty superficial way and study some of the major characters of Passion Week. And in most cases, I want to look at their vastly different responses. Somewhere along the way, you're going to find someone you can relate to and, or maybe even a feeling that you've experienced. I'm going to read Luke's rendition of the triumphal entry this morning. It's in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. This Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday and, and, or the triumphal entry Sunday. It's the, the beginning of Passion Week. Some have done it a couple of days before that in some theolo- theologies around the globe. 
this really pulled a trigger, in a sense, to every single event that is going to unfold. As Christ heads toward Jerusalem, he had been saying over and over again to his disciples, I have to go there. They didn't want him to go. Even not knowing what was going to, be predict- or what was going to happen, he predicted it. Many of them believed it, and they said, we'd rather you avoid it. But this event, this particular day, triggered every event. It was almost like the gun sounded and time began to march off the events that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit had been planning since the beginning of time as we know it, even before that, as they knew it and understood it. I don't know how far back you look forward to certain events or how far out you look forward to certain events, but Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have been looking forward to this particular week of events or this series of events since before time began. That's a long time to look forward to something. And now here it is. After Jesus had said all of this, all the predictions, all the intrigue of what this week was going to hold or share, he went on ahead. He went up to Jerusalem. He approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there that no one has ever ridden on. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and, Jesus, and put Jesus on it. And he went along and they, the people spread their coats or cloaks along the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples, remember a few weeks ago when I said there's more than 12? A whole crowd of disciples, the followers of Christ, began to joyfully praise God in loud voices. Underline those phrases for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I don't know if you can fully imagine the excitement that was generated by the crowd that day. Most of them had been around the ministry of Jesus. I've got to believe that some of them were there when he fed the, the, the thousands of people that gathered around. You've often wondered who of the miraculous interventions of Christ was there that particular day. But you couldn't have built a more exciting moment for them. Not only the disciples, but everyone who had heard about Christ and what he had done. The excitement was building. These people had been waiting for a king to release them from their oppression for generations. The prediction is as old as time, as old as the Old Testament, that a Messiah would come and he would rescue them and redeem them. They had read of the history of God doing that through the judges and the prophets, (coughs) and now he's going to do it from the vantage point of his own son, the coming Messiah. And so the excitement and the energy there that particular day, could this be the one? Everything they had thought about, prayed about, hoped for, they believed was in Christ. Could this be the one? And they're exhilarated. I mean, that place is so primed that when the Pharisees told Jesus to quiet the crowd down, Jesus said, look, if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. Talk about extremes. You've got a crowd of people who just wanted to give thanks and praise. Thanks for what he had done. Praise for who he is. Look at verse 37 for a moment. It gives one of the best descriptions of what praise and adoration, what you and I participate in on Sunday morning, that you can find. The whole crowd of disciples, that's you and I if we're followers of Christ, began to notice the word, what does it say? Joyfully. Joyfully praise God. With what? Loud voices. 
to joyfully praise God with loud voices for what? All that he had done. All the miracles that they had seen. And then you see them, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Two unusual, laid out in two small verses, aspect of what worship and praise is all about. Praise for what he has done. Adoration and thanks for what he has done. Praise for who he is. And you see it both laid out in those two verses. Praise for who he is and thanks for what he has done. And you go from that to the extreme of the Pharisees who didn't seem to want to do either. All over this land are people in both extremes, even in churches today. People who get so excited, they just want an opportunity to sing and celebrate. They really want to do what these disciples, this crowd of disciples did over 2,000 years ago. They want to give praise and adoration to the God of this universe, and they want to give thanks for what he has done. You and I sit here this morning because of what we celebrate this week. You and I sit here this morning because God the Father loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross so that you and I could be rescued and redeemed and set free for all eternity. If God never did another thing, never answered another of your prayers, that in and of itself is amazing. Isn't it? That the God of the universe set me free. Came and loved me that much that he gave us all so that I could have life and have it for all eternity. So often we find ourselves a little bit disillusioned with Christianity or Christ or God or our prayers because God hasn't answered this and he didn't heal that. He didn't intervene in this situation. I wanted him to do this or do that and he didn't do it. And we kind of get disillusioned or a little bit upset with God. We don't say it much, but inside we know that. And then every once in a while, I, per- can I'm, I-, I do the same. But then every once in a while, I've got to walk back in time and recognize what he did and say again with, with saints of old, God, if you never did another thing, if you never answered another one of my prayers, I am absolutely overwhelmed with the fact that you love me this much, that you sent your one and only son, your only son, to die on a cross, to rescue, to redeem me, to set me free with the promise of eternal life, to forgive all of my sins, all of my stuff, all of my junk, to wipe the slate clean, to give me the chance to start all over again, to put me in the family of God that has been amazing, and then to promise me eternal life when I leave this world. God, I'm sorry. I've got to remember that if there's not another prayer of mine you answer, thank you for everything you've done. And we gather on Sunday morning, we join with thousands around this globe who have the opportunity and want the opportunity to do just that. So they sing and they celebrate. They want to give praise and adoration, saying thanks to God for all he has done. Thanks to God for who he is. Give praise and adoration to the God of the universe. But there are some who gather in churches who honestly don't like it. They don't understand it. They, they, they wouldn't say it, but they really just wish the crowd would settle down. I mean, what on earth are you getting so excited about? What's the deal with the hands going up? Just settle down. And many who go through the motions, but no emotion at all. And every Sunday morning, I'm sure there are people gathered all across this globe who go from one extreme to the other, who cannot wait for the moment to do it corporately. I do it all week long. It's just, I listen to a lot of Christian music. I enjoy those moments of solitude with God, the quiet moments on my back porch when it's just me and Jesus. But I love Sunday morning. 
when we gather together as a family of God to give praise and adoration. But not even everybody in any given audience likes that. I just wish it were calmer or settled down somewhere along the way. And like Jesus said, i got to be honest with you, folks. If, if you stay quiet and subdued, the rocks themselves will cry out because of what he has done. And so I find myself saying, Lord, don't ever go to the, have to go to the rocks to get your praise and adoration. I want to do it. In any way possible. I, I raise my hands a lot. I don't clap a lot. I've heard worship pastors through the years. I'm, I don't think Justin's ever done it. So, uh, But, you know, hey, look, you yell and scream at a football game. Why can't you do that for God? I'm not going to compare the Steelers with God. So when I'm in that event, that's how I respond. When I'm in this place, I respond differently. And that's, that's okay. And I, I just, I've gotten tired of through the years getting beat up or feeling like I'm supposed to do what I do at a football game. Or how you cheer for the pirate. No, never mind. That's a <laughs> bad analogy. But have, if y'all, I'm sure you've heard that somewhere. There you pray, you sing, you cheer for the Steelers. Why can't you do that for God? I don't compare God to the Steelers. I respond differently, and that's okay. But to not respond at all doesn't make sense when I recognize that what the God of the universe has done. And I just want to join with these disciples who joyfully praise God with loud voices for everything they have seen and all that he has done. I want to take you on another journey now to Matthew chapter 26. It's in the middle of this week. John and, and the other Gospels put it in a little bit different place. And I'm not going to discuss or argue that. I just want to look at the anointing of Jesus. During Passover week, this one found in Matthew chapter 26. It begins in verse 6. Hey, Colin, could you hand me that bottle of water? My Marco Rubio impersonation. <clears throat> Yeah, people are going, what? Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. When she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Now, same disciples. Why the waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I, I, truly, I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He was right, as he is right in every other prediction. But he is right. This story has been told for over 2,000 years in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of places. The woman, some say it was Mary Magdalene. John is the only one that identifies her, if I know for sure, as, as Mary of Mary and Martha the brother of Lazarus, or the sisters of Lazarus, that Jesus raised from the dead, John identifies her as that Mary. So devoted to Jesus that she just wanted to express it. She did it in the only way she knew how. She came and she broke a bottle of perfume over Jesus' feet and she wiped it off with her hair. What's fascinating about the extreme in the story is that others seem to be more concerned with social issues than what it is that she was doing at the moment. She could have sold the perfume and given it to the poor, they said. Churches all across America, the same extremes exist even today. 
Some are more concerned about serving and doing good than falling in love with the one they serve. See, there's nothing wrong with serving at all. Nothing wrong with dealing with social issues. The church has ignored them for ages. The problem occurs when our focus is more on the service than the one we serve. You see, genuine service, if I gave you sermon notes, this would be in there this morning. Genuine service flows out of the depth of our love for the one we serve. Genuine service, whatever you do for the glory of God, genuine service flows out of the depths of the love of the one we serve. Otherwise, it does become somewhat mechanical. And I miss the intensity of the moment. Imagine the extreme between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. In the upper room, the disciples were as close to Jesus as, as they could have been. They were expressing their love. They probably were sharing some unbelievable experiences. John is the only one, when he finishes the book of John, he said, if I were to tell you everything that went on during this time with Jesus, the libraries of the world couldn't hold it all. I can't wait to get to heaven to read one. Because I want to check them out and I want to really find out all the things that went on. i got to believe there were a lot of stories that have been told. All of them had heard what Christ was going to do and knew what this week meant. But they hadn't experienced it before. So i got to believe when they gathered together in this upper room for this Passover meal, they began to share stories about what had taken place. What it was like to leave that their other journeys, whether it be the tax collector or the fisherman, whatever it may be, what it must have been like for them to now relive and rehash some of the things they experienced in these last two and a half to three years of their ministry with Jesus. What's fascinating about the story is these guys didn't have to pay $10,000 a plate to have a meal with a politician or $500,000 to be able to sleep in the White House. These guys had the opportunity to be with the Son of God. Now, if I had a choice between dinner with the Son of God or $500,000 to sleep in a Lincoln room, I'd have dinner with the Son of God. And these guys are having dinner with the Son of God. And the wonder and incredible moments that they're sharing. John, as we'll share on Friday night, paints one of the most amazing portraits. John, the one whom Jesus loved, he called himself Jesus' favorite. <laughs> my daughter, my one, my one daughter, I won't tell you which one it is. My one daughter asked me on a regular basis, which one of us is your favorite? <laughs> we celebrated her birthday. She's 35 today. So we celebrated her birthday last night. And I said, when you turn 50, I'll tell you which one. John already knew. He said, I'm it. <laughs> I'm the favorite of Jesus. And he writes the most amazing story and paints an incredible portrait of what went on there in that upper room. In those intimate moments with Jesus, you leave that and you head to Gethsemane. And everything falls apart. They let Jesus down in one way or the other. They couldn't have been more close, couldn't have been more intimate. And then all of a sudden you head to Gethsemane and one betrays him, one denies him, some fall asleep on him and the rest you don't even know about. And you look at those two extremes and say, how could that happen? I mean, how could you do that to these guys? Then I'm reminded again that there are many times on a Sunday morning when we worship, we are singing in a sense, one sense or the other, God, we love you, Lord, we love you. Everything I am, everything I've got, I'm yours, Lord. And that old chorus we used to sing. And then somewhere during the week on Monday or Tuesday when you know that Jesus wants you to tell somebody about him 
and you get that sense in your spirit that you ought to share what you do on a Sunday morning and what it was like for you, and all of a sudden you act like I don't even know Jesus. Wouldn't say that. You never say that, but we almost act when we know the Spirit of God is prompting us to say something about what we love about Christ and what we love about our relationship with God. We almost, because we don't say a word, act as if we don't know Him. Or those few who really do commit their lives to serving Him, and then somewhere along the way, the passion fades. You talk about extremes. Think about the extreme between Jesus or Judas and Peter. Now, Peter had his own <laughs> extremes. Not me, Lord. I'm with you no matter what. I'll, they, they're going to run like babies. I'm telling you, Jesus, I'll be with you right by your side. To a little while later, what do you mean? I don't even know the man. What I'm referring to in extremes is the difference of response between Judas and Peter of letting Jesus down. Both felt sorry. Both felt incredible angst inside. A sense of emptiness, a sense of, I cannot believe what just took place. But for Judas, it led to hopelessness, to despair, to finally taking his own life. For Peter, it led to remorse, brokenness, then to repentance, and eventually, as I described last week in John chapter 21, back into the arms of Jesus. One of the greatest words of the Easter story is two little words tucked away in the middle of Mark chapter 16, when the angel told the women that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Mark is the one that says this. She said, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. Sadly, in my years of ministry, I've seen the same extremes. I'm sure you have as well. Some who really are empty and hollow inside, who have absolutely no hope, no answer, and nowhere to turn, and still don't open their arms up to Jesus. And others who recognize their pain and their brokenness and know that Jesus is their only hope and they come running to him. And throughout this week, you're going to experience people like that. Who really, you know you're absolutely convinced they have nowhere else to turn. Their life is such a mess. And you offer them Christ. And it almost acts like you're offering them dessert. No thanks, not today. When you have and can offer them the greatest thing of all, you talk about the sadness of, of God. Because you know what it's like for you when, you when you know you have the answer to their hopeless situation. And you offer them Jesus and they reject it. And there are others like Peter who recognize that without Christ I have no hope. And regardless of what I've done and how messed up I've been and how far away from God I may have drifted, they come running back into the arms of Jesus and accepts them. And probably this week, you'll run across people in both extremes. One of the most seldom discussed, <laughs> the opposite of that, one of the, the, the seldom discussed characters of Scripture is a man named Barabbas. Probably hardly ever hear a sermon at Easter time on him. But he is a sermon in and of himself. You talk about extremes. One minute he's in a cell on death row, and the next moment outside, squinting his eyes in the sun, knowing that he's free. The story is found in, in all the Gospels. In Mark 15, it's the fact that Jesus is now before Pilate. He's interviewing Jesus. Jesus doesn't say a word. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Yes, Jesus finally said, it's as you say. 
chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate answered him, are you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with an insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. A crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, and that was to release a prison. Don't you, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed him over, Jesus over to him, but the crowd of priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Max Licato writes probably better than anybody I've ever read on all of the characters of the Easter story and the Christmas story and everything in between. He writes this about Barabbas. Barabbas has often been compared to humanity. He stands, in a sense, for all of us, a prisoner freed by someone he had never met who took his place. But I think Barabbas was probably smarter than we are in one respect. You see, as far as we know, he took his sudden freedom for what it was. An undeserved gift. Someone tossed him a life preserver. He grabbed it. No questions asked. Couldn't imagine him thinking like some of us. We take our free gift and then try to earn it or diagnose it or try to pay for it instead of saying, thank you so much. As crazy as it may sound, he said, one of the hardest things for us to do is to be saved by grace. Because we have some weird compulsion to create laws and systems and regulations to make us somehow worthy of our gift. Because to accept grace means that we've got to realize our worthlessness and our despair. And not everyone's willing to do that. Barabbas knew better. Stranded on death row, granted a stay of execution. Maybe didn't understand mercy. He certainly didn't deserve it. He certainly didn't need it. Didn't deserve it. But he wasn't going to refuse it. Our plight isn't a whole lot different than his. We too are prisoners with absolutely no chance of appeal when Jesus can set us free. But sadly, some prefer to stay in prison when the cell door has been unlocked. You know anyone like that, a prisoner of pain or their past or a prisoner of anger and bitterness, when the door is open and freedom is available? If it's true that a picture paints a thousand words, then a Roman centurion got a dictionary full. He never saw Jesus preach, probably never saw him heal, Never witnessed anything he had done. The only thing that he saw, at least what was court in Scripture, Jesus do was die. He only witnessed the way he died. But that was all it took to cause this soldier to take a giant step of faith and simply say, surely this was a righteous man. And then he adds, this was the Son of God. Talk about extremes when the other soldiers spit on him, mocked him. Drew their dice, threw the dice to see who would win his clothes, and one soldier realized who Jesus was, and he responded in adoration. How do you and I respond in light of all that Christ has done for us is a great question. Because somewhere along the way in this story that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John portray, we'll find ourselves at one extreme or the other, at one place or the other. And this particular week of all weeks gives us the opportunity to respond. Now this morning in these moments together as we close, we're going to end in adoration. On Friday night, we're going to end in reflection. And next Sunday morning, it's going to be celebration. Adoration today, reflection on Friday night, and celebration next Sunday morning.
Father, in these moments together, we're all going to find ourselves at one point or the other. And so I, I trust that, Lord, as we contemplate who you are and who we are and what you have done and what we've received, today we'll join with those crowds who with joy and adoration thank you for all you have done and for who you are. And may you remind us this week of our place and what we had done and the freedom that you offer. And we will, we will sing and we will celebrate because of what you have done and the grace you have given us.